Let's, uh, let's open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another glorious day. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that you're a God of hope and a God of forgiveness. But you're also a God of wrath and that you will come and defend your honor, your name, and your people. And we thank you, Lord, for being a God who is gracious and merciful. And we pray as we look at this rain that you're going to come back and bring that we would be all the more excited about the day that you return, that we'd be motivated in evangelism and living godly and holy lives, all for the sake of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, dear ones, this is going to be our last message here in Revelation chapter 11. We kind of got stuck in the midpoint of this message last time, so we're going to be finishing it up. Um, I want to remind you that next week we get into Revelation chapter 12, and Revelation chapter 12, all the way through Revelation 14, verse 20, is background to the seven bold judgments. And what it does, it shows how Satan has wanted to wipe out Israel from the beginning of time. And so there's a lot of meaty stuff in that section. So please, if you would, before next week, read Revelation chapter 12 in its entirety in one setting. And I think that'll make the text come more alive for us as we study it together. Now, remember, we left off in Revelation 11, verses 15 through 19, where we're looking at how Christ's reign, his kingdom, is foreseen. And so assured is this kingdom to come that he speaks as if it's already happened. Okay? So, remember also, the sevens, we have seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and then seven bowl judgments. Did everybody remember that? Every seven opens up to the next one. So the seventh seal opens up to the seventh trumpets. The seventh trumpet will open up to the seven bowls. So that's where we are. We're at the seventh trumpet, which is going to open up to the seven bowl judgments. Now, let's do a little review from last time. I know it's been a while. We talked about the pronouncement of Christ's kingdom. Notice here where it says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And we talked about how has become is what's called a proleptic heiress. In other words, heiress normally talks about, in the indicative, things that happened in the past. So the question is, well, why is John speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as if this reign of Christ has already happened? Well, a proleptic heiress is an heiress that talks about something that is so certain, God speaks as if it has already occurred. Okay, that's the idea. Now, Bob gave a great analogy last time, but we got to do a whole trip together and it's amazing what we can come up with in an RV. <laughs> so, Bob, tell them your uh, other analogy for prolepsis. This is a great example, and this will explain what we mean by proleptic. Yeah, actually, it's an example of a misuse. It's, it's a misuse, but it'll make the point. All right. right. I was watching the political conventions <clears throat> and notice that they say, we introduce to you the next president of the United States, Hillary Clinton. Okay, that's prolepsis, because we haven't voted yet. Four years ago, they said, we introduced to you the next president of the United States, Mitt Romney. Right. Whoops. Yeah, didn't happen. He's not, he never became the president. So here's what we learned. That is prolepsis. And the political parties do it. It annoys me. I wish they wouldn't. Uh-huh. But here's the difference. When God does it, 
God cannot lie. Exactly. When God does it, it will happen. Amen. When man does it, they may be wrong. Right. Yeah, amen. Great example. Yeah. So anytime you get confused about prolepsis, remember that statement. Our next president of the United States, well, that's chutzpah, isn't it? Right? They should say the Lord willing, the next president of the United States. So, Okay, so we also saw that the Lord and his Christ echoed Psalm 2. And I just want to reiterate that Psalm 2 is the backdrop to this section. We'll be reading that here in just a few slides. Now, the other thing we talked about is we wrestled with when it says that Christ rules over the world and that the kingdom of the world has become his kingdom, we define that the world really has to do with all three arenas. It's all that is created, number one. Number two, it's the realm of human affairs, politics. Number three, it's humanity and rebellion against God. It's all three. Christ is coming to the earth and reign. He's going to reign on the earth. Now, we took this as an opportunity to look at what amillennialism teaches. Now, amillennialism teaches that Christ is currently reigning from heaven. And so this passage to them would be about Christ reigning in heaven. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is over and over, the scriptures declare that the messianic reign is going to be over the earth. And we saw Old Testament examples of this. Daniel 2.35, talking about the messianic kingdom that comes about to replace the four other ungodly kingdoms. It says the stone that struck the statue, that's the messianic kingdom, became a great mountain and filled what? The whole earth. It's going to be a worldwide kingdom. Zechariah 14.9, this is after the battle where all the nations gather against Jerusalem. And after that battle, it says, and Yahweh will be king over what? Over all the earth. In that day, Yahweh will be the only one in his name, the only one. We see this fulfilled in Revelation, Revelation 5.10. John is speaking of these elders. The elders say, you have made them, that's believers, to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign where? On a cloud strumming a harp? No, they're going to reign upon the earth. All right. Now, we took this as an opportunity to show other problems with amillennialism, and this is what we have in common. Both amillennialism and premillennialism believes in this age, what we would call the church age, the age that we're living in until the second advent of Christ. And we also believe that there's going to be eternal states, but notice in the premillennial view, we believe that there's a thousand-year earthly reign of Christ that intervenes prior to the eternal states. Does everyone see that on the screen? Now, why is that a better view? Well, one reason, we mentioned this text last time, just notice in the red, Zechariah 14, 17, it says, and it will be that whichever of the families of the earth that does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Now, let me ask you this. Again, in the millennial position in this age, the, the age that we're living in right now, are nations being forced to go up and worship Yahweh who's reigning in Jerusalem? No. Okay? So it's obviously not going to happen in this age. It's obviously going to happen when the Lord returns. But notice in the eternal states, it can't happen then. Why? Because that's all the amillennialists have. They have this age in the eternal states because all unbelievers are going to be in the lake of fire. So how can they be compelled if they're in the lake of fire to go up and worship Yahweh? So they have no age to put it in. And we saw that that was a very big problem for amillennialism. Okay, so with that, now we come to this section where we just left off. This is where we left off last time, that God's power is going to overcome the usurpers. 
And here, we're going to see Yahweh intervene through his son Jesus as the great Goel, the great redeemer who purchases back all that which is lost. Okay, so let's read the text and we'll comment on Jesus being the great Goel. Revelation 11, 16 through 17, it says, And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord, God, the Almighty who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Now notice this phrase, have taken your great power, very significant, the grammar here. There's a perfect tense verb when it says have taken. Okay, now why is that important? Because a perfect tense verb often has to do with an event that occurred in the past and it was completed. Okay, that's why it's called perfect. It's perfectly completed. But the focus on the perfect tense is the present-day ramifications that are always with you. So think of it this way. If the Vikings, Lord willing, would ever win a Super Bowl, they won the game, the Super Bowl, in the past. It was perfectly completed. But the effect is always with them. They are always Super Bowl winners. Are you with me? So there's a new state of affairs that's been brought about by this past action. And so the idea here is that there's a contrast between the new and eternal state of affairs versus the old age where sinful power of humanity dominated. And the best thing I could put it in our vernacular is there's a new sheriff in town. And everything's different from then on. Never will the people of God ever fear anymore. Yeah, Bob. Well, there's a political analogy for that, too. <clears throat> because uh, if somebody is on TV who used to be something, they call them that still. Like yeah. um, this morning I saw Governor Huckabee. Well, he has been governor for years and years. Right. But because he was that, they still call him that. Well said. So it's the same kind of thing as you said about the Vikings. Exactly. It's always The only them. difference is Huckabee really was a governor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, good point. I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, very good point. Now, um, by the way, the, the have begun to reign, this is what's called an ingressive proleptic era. So prolepsis, again, speaking as if it's already occurred. Ingressive meaning it's beginning, and so it doesn't imply that it's ended. Ingressive means it's beginning, and his reign is obviously for how long? It's forevermore. Now, when God comes to reign, it's through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the God-man, is going to take the rule of God from the unseen realm to the seen realm. And he's bringing a kingdom to the earth. Now, I want you to remember that in the Old Testament, God had foreshadowed the work of Jesus Christ being our great redeemer through various laws. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were commanded to redeem three different categories of things. The first thing that had to be redeemed was a firstborn son. The second thing that had to be redeemed was a person's name. The third thing that had to be redeemed was the land. And what I'm contending is that all of this was designed to foreshadow the work of Jesus Christ, who is the great Goel. Goel means the, the redeemer. Okay, so these various laws were used by God to show his righteous rule, but 
while he did so, he was also foreshadowing the coming great Goel, Jesus, who would do this very thing. So let me give you an example. Why would you have to redeem the firstborn? Well, remember in the ancient Near East, the firstborn had two things going for them. They had, number one, the inheritance rights. Everything that was owned by the father belonged to them. Now, that sounds very interesting, doesn't it? Think about Jesus as the firstborn par excellence. Everything that the father owns belongs to him, right? But by you and I belonging to Christ, everything that belongs to God belongs to us. We're derived firstborn. Now, the other beautiful thing about being the firstborn, it's also a responsibility, was that they were priests before God. They represented their family before Yahweh. Bob did a wonderful job up in Canada showing the categories of the priesthood of every believer. There are seven things that priests do to represent the, the people of God and represent God himself. Okay? Now, without the priesthood of every believer, you can't have sola scriptura. Why? Because if the saints can't prophesy and determine what's biblical, sola scriptura goes out the window. So that's what Bob was teaching. So that's another very important thing that the firstborn did. They were priests before God. All right? Now, what's very interesting is transport yourself back to the time of the Exodus. In Exodus 4.22, what does Yahweh say of Israel? He says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn. Now, when he's saying that Israel is his firstborn, he's saying they're the ones who have the inheritance rights, and they're the ones who represent me on the earth. And so the idea is let my people go, right? So think of the irony. Egypt attacks God's firstborn, Israel. And remember, they fa in fact, in Exodus 1, they try to wipe out the children that come out of the womb, but the Hebrew midwives won't go along with it. Well, what does God do when is Egypt attacks Israel, God's firstborn, is he does a reversal. And how does he get them out of captivity? He takes their firstborn. And the only way to be saved is to be under the blood of the Lamb. So God takes his firstborn out of Egypt, Israel, that has the inheritance rights, that are to represent him as priests by smiting the firstborn in Egypt. And from that point on, in Exodus 34, 20, God demands that all of the firstborn would belong to him. Everything that comes out of the womb in Israel, it belongs to him. And they will forever remember the great hand of Yahweh, the hand of Yahweh who can take the firstborn, the ones with the inheritance rights, and bring them to himself. And so he owns it all. He owns the firstborn. So... What does God do? Well, the pagan deities, if you had a false god like Moloch, they would require you to sacrifice your firstborn child. Well, God, obviously the true God, that's abhorrent to him. So what he does is he takes a substitution. So you see substitution for the firstborn. So the substitution, you can read about this in Numbers 18, God takes the Levites to himself as a substitute. Instead of taking all the firstborn, he takes the Levites. Then he gives them back as a gift to the people to minister to the people so that he can dwell in their presence. Now, there's also a five-shekel demand. If you had a firstborn son, you were to pay five shekels to redeem your firstborn. Always to remember that Yahweh had redeemed his firstborn Israel. So Jesus' parents have to bring Jesus to the temple, right? And they have to pay the five-shekel redemption fee because he's their firstborn. Now, the way this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ is think about Jesus. He pays not just five shekels. What does he pay to redeem us? 
his own life. God himself, the great Goel, the Redeemer, Jesus, sheds his blood to purchase us as the firstborn. And that's why it says in Hebrews 12, 23, that you and I are the firstborn enrolled in heaven. So we're the ones now with the inheritance rights. We are the ones who are priests to God as Bob's been laying out. That's who we are. So Jesus fulfills that. Now, the second thing that you had to do in Israel that was commanded was to redeem the name of an Israelite. Why? Think of it this way. Yahweh is a life-giving God. And as such, if anyone were to ever lose their name, in other words, they die, their name is blotted out, it's never remembered anymore, it's bad, I hate to say the term, but it's bad PR for Yahweh. It doesn't represent who he is. Are you with me? So what God demands is through the Leverite marriage laws in Deuteronomy 25, that if a man would die, his brother, if he had a brother, would act like a goel, a redeemer, and he would marry his brother's wife to carry on the name of the brother. So the name of the brother would never die out. Now, turn your Bibles to Isaiah, Isaiah 62, 2. I want you to see that Jesus also redeems our name. When you and I are saved, the Bible is very clear that we're going to be given a, a new name, a redeemed name. And I want you to see that this extends to Israel as well. Isaiah 62, 2. Notice here, it's, it's talking about the vindication of Zion, the vindication of Israel. Isaiah 62, 2. This is Yahweh speaking through Isaiah. He says, nations will see your, that's Israel, your vindication and all the kings your splendor. You will be called by a new name that Yahweh himself will give you. So notice the new name that Israel is going to be given. This is ultimately fulfilled in God's elect in Revelation chapter 3. Turn your Bibles ahead. I know it's way far away, but Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. We're focusing on this idea of a new name. Revelation 3.12. This is the promise that Jesus gives to the church at Philadelphia, but by extension, it, it, it applies to all of us. In all seven addresses to the seven churches, remember it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it applies to all of us, doesn't it? So Revelation 3.12. Jesus says, he who overcomes... By the way, stop there. Don't think that there's works righteousness advocated... 1 John 5, 5, who is an overcomer but the one who has faith in Jesus, right? Okay, so that's an overcomer. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God. This is the new name. So you and I, even though we die and we go into the ground, because we're God's people and we're heading towards resurrection and a kingdom, we're going to be given a new name a name that will never die, a redeemed name, all because of the great Goel. Yeah, Bob. You may have mentioned this, and I didn't hear you because I was looking for it, but in Hebrews 1, Jesus is called the firstborn. Yes. It says here, Hebrews 1, 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son when again he brings his firstborn into the world 
he says, and all the angels of God must worship him. Amen. And so it doesn't imply that Jesus is created. Yes. Because he's co-eternal with the Father. But it's talking about preeminence. Exactly. And so the ultimate firstborn is Messiah. Exactly right. According to Hebrews. Yeah, exactly. Then when we get to Hebrews 12.23, in fact, do you want to read Hebrews 12.23? I I think it's 12.23. We'll just make sure we get that on the tape, too. Hebrews 12.23, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven. So the preeminent firstborn is Messiah declared to be that as a position of honor and glory. And we, our firstborn, by being in Christ, it's just like he is the high priest. Whoever lives to make intercession for us. Amen. But we are kings and priests to God. Amen. Hey, Bob, related to the anointing. Because well, he's the Jesus anointed one. Jesus is the anointed. I'm going to be talking about this. Today. No, today is they went out from oh, us. Oh, I'm sorry. Next, next week. week yeah. yeah. You know what <laughs> it was great about Canada? They had us in this RV. Oh, it was great. I had a built-in yeah. theologian. Yeah, well, I did to too. Help me <laughs> was write fun. my sermon. <laughs> so while I, we had downtime, I wrote a sermon for next week. Yeah, that, that was, was fun. about the anointing. So yeah. I came going, Eric, what about this? What about uh, this? It was fun. I know we can't do that every week. Uh, yeah, really a nice benefit. Yeah, but see, the anointed one is Messiah. I'll have a slide about that next week. We are anointed, but. We're under Messiah. So we're not uniquely the anointed ones. All Christians are anointed. And so next week, I'll be talking about an application of this, that false teachers come on TV and claim to be the great anointed man of God. And they're really just putting out a calling card saying, I'm an antichrist. (laughs) We'll talk about that. Exactly. And yeah. if there's anything wrong, it's Eric's fault. He helped me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it's got to be the food, right? We had a wonderful time. And you should have heard Eric no. teach the flow. Oh, so blessed. His, he, he brought in the feeble Seth yeah, being a dead dog, yeah. eating at the king's table. And it almost became a theme of the conference. Yeah. And we had, uh, for people we never had seen before, from all, in fact, one man, a CIC reader, flew in from Japan, Japan to be there. Just for the conference. For the conference. He flew from Japan. Eric and I had lunch with him. But um, we couldn't have had more unity and more joy yeah. and it just more sense of awe at the grace of God through the gospel. Amen. But this feeble set that Eric taught about almost became thematic as then their pastor mentioned it. Yeah. And we were just all rejoicing, all of us, that God would take a dead dog. Now remember the Jews hate dogs. <laughs> dogs are unclean, they're evil, they're wicked. Dogs are bad. They're not like <laughs> nice little puppies that Americans have. Okay. So a dead dog would be the dead or unclean dogs are unclean. A dead dog the is the most unclean, yeah. disgusting, worthless thing ever. 
and the feeble Seth, considering himself that, deserved to die. I'm, yeah. I'm taking, telling you what Eric preached, because yeah. he was descendant of Saul, and they'd always wipe all them out, lest they make a coup attempt. Yeah. And David invites him to dine with the king. And by application, all of us, dear saints, are dead dogs dining with the king. Amen. Who are now kings and priests of God. And talk about grace alone. Yeah. And Eric, thank you for teaching us. Oh, that was a pleasure. And you're right. We all were walking around that whole conference saying, we're just dead dogs. <laughs> Very humble group. Everybody's all, no, before, before you, you go before me. So, yeah. I'm sorry, Mike, you had something. Yeah. Boy, uh, we are privileged to come here and, and hear you guys preach to us every day about the gospel, about Jesus Christ. And, you know, I think I have to come a long ways from Champlin and some other people come a long, yeah. long ways too, but it's not quite Japan. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so thank you for your preaching, guys, and, and, and glorifying uh, Yahweh and, and Christ for us, uh, giving us the gospel every week. Um, what I wanted to talk about, all this Christology that we're talking about here with, with Christ, and Bob, you just touched on it too, you know, you mentioned that Christ is not created. He's eternal with the Father, and he is a unique one. And this word begotten with a lot of the cults and stuff gets used all the time as created. Monogenes, yeah. yeah. Monogenes yeah. is it, begotten. Exactly, yeah. but it yeah. really should be rendered the unique one. The unique one. Yeah. And so when you have the, 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 the Mormons come and knock on the door and tell yeah. you that, you know, he's created, begotten means created, all this is pointing out how unique Christ is and yeah. all the things that he has fulfilled, you know, the, all the inheritance of the firstborn son and all these other things on and on and on. So I was yeah. just sitting here thinking about kind of helps drive the point home how unique Christ is and exactly. don't get fooled by begotten means created. Right, because exactly gets, right. Yeah. The monogenes, um, the, the term in the Greek for a begotten, as Mike is pointing out, is monogenes. Now, genes comes from a verb, genao, which means to exist, to come into existence, but mono means one. But it doesn't mean that he came into existence at a point in time or something like that. What it means is he's the unique one that exists. And so when you see that phrase, the monogenes, it's referring to this firstborn concept that Bob was just talking about, the firstborn idea that the firstborn has the inheritance rights, he's unique. And that's who Jesus is. So exactly right. So when you see monogenes, only begotten, typically, don't think that that's Jesus coming into existence. It should be rendered the unique one. In fact, do some versions um, have that, Bob? Well, let me see what mine is. Yeah, look that up and maybe see, because you have the Holman Christian, right? Yeah. Some versions might have that now, the unique one, because only begotten is somewhat misleading. Well, they at least yeah, they footnote it. So, okay, so what we just saw then is the second thing. The Israelites' name had to be redeemed. Jesus, as the great Goel, redeems our name as well through his work. Now, the third thing I want to point out is the land. Turn your Bibles to Leviticus 25, verses 23 through 25. And what I want you to see is that there was a provision in the law that if a man, because of his financial state, lost his property, it had to be redeemed. Why? Because it ultimately belongs to Yahweh. Okay, so none of the land, and that's why they had the year of Jubilee. Every 50th year, the land had to be returned, irregardless of whether the man could pay or not. Okay, I, sh that's a, I should say regardless of whether the man could pay or not. Okay, so, all right, Leviticus 25. I got it, Eric. Oh, you found it, good. Well, I, got, I have the Holman Christian. I think this is the verse we're talking about. Uh, John 114. Oh, yeah. Is that right? Yeah, that's in there, I think. Isn't okay, it? well, let me read what it says. The word became flesh and took up residence among us, 
and we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. One and only. One and Very only. Very good. I think uh, the older versions say only begotten. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that, but they're just trying to sort, short circuit the cage or the Jehovah Witnesses. There yeah. We go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so that, that's the Holman Christian. Uh, this is the Holman Christian standard, okay. but a lot of you will have study Bibles of various kinds. Yeah. And if you follow the footnotes, um, John 1 14 they'll probably tell you this. Okay, very good. Yeah, that's a good I like that translation. Yeah, what version do you have, Mike? The Holman. The Holman, okay. The Holman's uh, study Bible, the definition for one and only in their notes section says one of a kind or incomparable or only begotten. The Greek word can refer to someone's only child as in Luke 7 12. 842, 938. It can also refer to someone's special child as in Hebrews eleven seventeen. Amen. Well said. Very good. That's it. Yep. Very well said. So, okay, now back to Leviticus 25. Here's the redemption of the land. Notice what's commanded. Leviticus 25, 23 through 25. It says, The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently. Now listen to the reason. He says, For the land is mine. So Yahweh speaking here. So why can't the land be sold perpetually because it's his he says for you are but aliens and sojourners with me verse 24 thus for every price of your property you're to provide for the redemption of the land if a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor he has to sell part of his property then his nearest kinsman there's goel in the hebrew there's the redeemer is to come and buy back what his relative has sold okay so unquote stop there so what does jesus do in the 70th week of Daniel, he comes back and he purchases back the whole land. Now, not just the land of Israel, but in fact, the whole earth. Now, I want you to see some individual passages that talk about Yahweh being the Redeemer. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 41.14. I just want you to see if, that this is a prevalent concept. Isaiah 41.14. Israel is to be redeemed. The earth is to be redeemed all through the work of the great Goel. And you... Brothers and sisters, as you're studying the book of Revelation, you're seeing how he does it. That's, that's what we're reading about. From chapter 6 of Revelation all the way through chapter 22, you're looking at the details of how the great Goel redeems all that which is lost. Remember when he came into the world, Jesus says in Luke 19.10, I came to seek and save that which was what? Which was lost. He's the great Goel. Okay, notice here in Isaiah 41.14, speaking to Israel, Do not fear, you worm Jacob. You men of Israel, I will help you, declares Yahweh, and your Redeemer, there's Goel, is the Holy One of Israel. So Yahweh's going to redeem them, and that's what the book of Revelation is about, God redeeming all that which is lost through Jesus Christ. Turn three chapters ahead real quickly to Isaiah 44, 6. Isaiah 44, 6. It says, Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, there's Goel, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. So again, Yahweh is the great Redeemer of Israel. Now, one more passage I want you to see, because I want you to see it in your eyes. Turn to Psalm 24.1. Psalm 24.1, because I want you to see that, yes, Yahweh is the Redeemer of Israel, but you know what? The whole earth belongs to Him as well. Psalm 24.1. Psalm 24.1, it says, The earth is Yahweh's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. 
The book of Revelation, brothers and sisters, is about the 70th week of Daniel. And in the 70th week of Daniel, and what we're seeing is a snapshot here, God is going to bring forth his reign and redeem all that which is lost through the great Goel, Jesus Christ. That's what you and I have the privilege in studying about here this morning in, in the book of Revelation. Okay, so God's reign comes. Now, the nations aren't going to take this lying down. They're going to fight against Yahweh. Notice Revelation eleven eighteen. It says, And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, dear ones, notice in the very beginning of this passage, it says that the nations were enraged. That thematically should bring us back to Psalm chapter 2. Now, in Psalm chapter 2, many of you know that we see that the nations are in an uproar against Yahweh. So turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. We're going to read that text because that's the backdrop to this section of Revelation. Again, Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, as we read it, we'll point out some important things here. Psalm 2, we'll start in verse 1. I don't know if everyone's turned there or not. Psalm 2, verse 1. Notice this is the question David asks. He says, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Now stop there. This idea of the nations in an uproar is exactly what we see in verse 18 here, that the nations were enraged. What's very interesting is the term in Hebrew for uproar was a term that was originally used for horses. And it's this idea that they're gallivanting, they're going all about without any control. They're Oh, the French fries are done. <laughs> you always hear that in McDonald's. <laughs> Sorry, for those who uh, are listening, the, we heard a big beep. So <laughs> um, so this idea that the, the nations are gallivanting around, they're out of control, right? And so the idea is they're rebelling against Yahweh. And they're also devising a vain thing. It's in vain, meaning uh, the term, by the way, the Greek, kenos, means empty. It's a worthless thing to plot in fight and rebel against God because you'll lose okay you'll, you'll lose every time so anyone who tries to rebel against God is holding the losing hand in a card game and that's why it's a vain thing now notice in verse 2 it says the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel again, together against Yahweh and against his anointed now stop there the term anointed comes from Mashiach that's where we get our term Messiah the anointed one. Now, when David wrote this, he was, in a sense, an anointed one. God would have prophets, priests, and kings anointed. Well, in a sense, David functions as all three. He functions as the anointed one. He represents Yahweh in Jerusalem, but he is a sinful man. He is an anointed one who falls short of the ideal. And so he obviously is prophesying. In fact, I'm not saying this. David, or excuse me, Peter himself says that David spoke as a prophet concerning the Christ in Acts chapter 2. Ultimately, David is writing of the greater David, the Messiah, the anointed one. And so notice in verse 3, the nations say, let us, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, 
I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Stop there. Verse 7 is exceedingly important. Why? Because verse 7 is reiterated by God the Father at Jesus' baptism. So let's talk about Jesus' baptism just real quickly. And Phil Johnson, by the way, at the, at the conference gave a really nice message about it as well. But here, here's the issue. Remember Jesus is baptized in Matthew chapter 3? And one of the questions is why in the world is Jesus baptized? Jesus wasn't a sinner, and yet he says to John the Baptist, who is aghast that he would be baptizing Jesus, he says to him, we have to do so, so all righteousness will be fulfilled. Well, where in the Mosaic law did it command baptism? It doesn't. So the key phrase, the way we unpack this is in Matthew 3, when Jesus is baptized, you see Psalm 2-7 quoted from heaven. The Father says, this is my son. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. So all of a sudden we have a declaration from heaven that Jesus is the anointed one, that he is the son, he is the firstborn, he's all of those things. But what's very interesting is remember who was originally God's son? It was Israel. Didn't God say in Exodus 4.22 that Israel is his son? So Israel goes through the baptism of the Red Sea and they go into the wilderness for 40 years and they fail. God's son fails because of unbelief. They fall in the wilderness. Now, where does Jesus go after God declares him to be the son in Matthew 3? Matthew 4, after his baptism, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. But where Israel failed in the wilderness, the son, Jesus, the true son, succeeds in obedience. And he lives the perfect life that none of us could so that by trusting in him, his righteousness can be credited to our account. So Psalm 2-7 is quoted at the baptism of Christ and the transfiguration of Christ. Now, I'll come back to that, but let's continue on here. We'll read the rest of it. Verse 8, he says, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. So whoever this anointed one is, he's going to have the nations as his inheritance. Well, that's what we're reading about in Revelation 11, that he's going to reign. All of this is going to come about. And verse 9, it says, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning. O judges of the earth, worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun. Sometimes your versions will say, kiss the sun. It means do homage. Pay respects to him. That's the idea. So worship Yahweh. Excuse me, verse 12. Do homage to the sun that he will not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Now, I want to make a very important connection to you with this idea of Psalm 2, not just here for Revelation, but for our entire Bible. Here's why. Let me turn your attention to 2 Peter for just a moment. In 2 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 17, if you will. Just turn to that, and as you turn to it, I'll make a comment on what this is all about. I just want you to understand the significance of Psalm 2, not just here in Revelation 11, but in the the broader New Testament. Very important passage. Second Peter 1.17. Just turn there. Now, let me set the stage. In Second Peter, what's the issue? The issue is you have false teachers who are claiming that the apostles 
misinterpreted revelation. They misinterpreted the Bible. And so the false teachers are saying, you can live any way you want. Jesus is not coming back. Peter and the apostles are saying, oh, no, Jesus is coming back. And we've had our interpretation authenticated by what? By the experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. Listen to what Peter says. 2 Peter 1.17, Peter says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, this is Jesus receiving honor and glory from the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. So this is on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter's recalling. This is what he heard. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, what does that come from? It comes from Psalm 2.7. Well, what does it say in Psalm 2.8 after that? It says, I've given you the nations as your inheritance. So Peter is reasoning, does Jesus have the nations as in his inheritance now? Right now while he's in heaven? No. So he has to return, therefore, and fulfill Psalm 2.8. Therefore, the apostles have the correct interpretation, and that's why Peter says, you're not entitled to your own inter- in- interpretation. God is the ultimate author, and he defines what the text means. That's Peter's grand point. So how do we know that Jesus must return and that you and I aren't misinterpreting the scriptures? God himself quoted Psalm 2 of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. And the next verse, he could have gone on to say, the nations are your inheritance. And Peter knew that. So this is an extremely important text. And here in Revelation eleven eighteen, we see that, yes, this great Goel, Jesus, is going to reign over all the earth. He's going to be the one who destroys the enemies of God, and the nations will, in fact, be his inheritance. Yeah. In the MacArthur Study Bible, this particular verse, I think MacArthur makes a good point by saying... If you look back into Revelation 6, which we went through, yeah. the, the nations, they, they've, they've turned now. Now they're enraged. Before, they were scared, hiding in caves, yeah. going here, you know. So it's the, it's the utmost of rebellion now for exactly the reason that you just pointed out. Great point, yeah. It doesn't get better, they get worse. Instead of coming to repentance, they rebel more. Well said, yes. Yeah, Christy. Um, a few years ago, I attended a conference, and one of the speakers said that it's not um, accurate for us to worship God as king or Christ as king right now because he is not reigning on the earth. And, you know, so it got very confusing. And, um, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> a lot of people go to it. <laughs> um, yeah. And anyway, um, I think that speaker was wrong. I, I clearly think that Same. speaker was wrong. But I'd like to understand sort of, like, we sing a lot of times, you know, um, king over all the earth. As a matter of fact, I think we sing it today. And yeah. so how, how do we look at that then? Um, is it like proleptic worship? <laughs> yeah. I, great point. I would say that he, he is the king now over all things, but there is an already not yet. Let me give you an example. Remember in Ephesians 1, it says that we were seated with him in the heavenly places, Now, you and I haven't experienced that yet, but we have reservations there. And because God is the one who has given us the reservation of eternal life, that reservation is never going to be nullified. In fact, in 1 Peter, there's a term, tereo, the idea of guarding. God is the guard dog of our reservation in heaven, so we can never lose it. 
In the same way, Jesus does reign from heaven, and all things are under his authority. So even the rebellion that we see now is all part of his foreordained plan. It's part of what we call the decretive will. So remember in the book of Acts, you had the will of God. You men had crucified Jesus according to the predetermined plan of God, but also violated his moral will, right, that they were in rebellion. In the same way Jesus is king now, he rules and reigns. And yes, there's rebellion, but he's using even the rebellion for his purposes. Now, we're seeing the fulfillment one day where he will reign and put down all, all the usurpers. Yeah, yeah, Bob. Hebrews. Oh, very good. Yeah. Um, let me just read a little Hebrews 1. And about the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. But to the sun, your throne... Oh, God is forever and ever. Amen. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with oil of joy rather than your companions or above your companions. So Hebrews claims that Jesus is the king. And he's reigning in heaven. Amen. And it cites scripture to prove it. He's sitting at the right hand of God. And not only that, he's king and priest. Amen. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He has a throne in heaven. And according to Hebrews 4.16, every one of us as believers has access to the throne of grace. Amen. So the king hears the prayers because he's omniscient of every Christian and has promised in Hebrews 4:16 when we come to the throne room in prayer that he gives us what? Mercy, grace, and timely help is the best translation. Mercy, grace, and timely help. I've been, when I got back from Canada, yeah. inbox full of people <laughs> wanting me to help them with their devils and Satan and all that. Sure. And I keep, and it's so time-consuming, but I've been doing it. I was just doing it yesterday, preaching the gospel to all these people. Every one of them hears about Hebrews 4.16. Yeah, yeah. And so I make them think about it. Do you want some person on the earth who supposedly knows all this stuff to rearrange the cosmic furniture? Yeah. Or do you want to go to the throne of grace to Jesus and let him take care of you? Amen. You know what the surprising thing is? A lot of them just leave. Mm. They don't want Jesus in the throne of grace. They want a man. Maybe they're of the ilk that what Christy heard at yeah. that conference. Yeah, Jesus isn't going to help you. I wrote to this one guy, do you really think that Jesus is saying, no, I won't help you because you're supposed to go figure this out for yourself? Right, right. That's what they think. Yeah. No, we gotta, we're supposed to cast out devils, and we got to figure it out for ourselves. He won't help us. Well, that's a lie because he says he would. Amen. That's Can right. Jesus lie? The king and priest on the throne of grace isn't good enough for you? Right. Well, 
I think I'll go call somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, Bob. Yeah, so I, I think, Christy, you're, um, yeah, absolutely, he's king, and he's king now. So there's different stages of his rule, and, and that's what we're looking forward to is, yeah, the consummation of his rule. Yeah, amen. Well said. Um, let me point out a little bit of um, grammar here. Again, your wrath came. This is another proleptic aorist. Again, speak, spoken as if it's already occurred. Let me point one more thing out here. It's very important. Notice it says, and the time came for the dead to be judged. This is important because preterist, does everyone know what a preterist is? A preterist is someone who believes these things occurred in 70 A.D. So Revelation isn't about the future. It's about what happened in 70 A.D. when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. There was a man named David Chilton, and he takes this very text. He's a preterist, and he says this is about the wrath of God coming upon Jerusalem. Now, I have a big problem with that because it's not about 70 A.D. And the proof of it is, notice the underlying portion. It says the time came for the dead to be judged. This is about judgment coming. Now, the dead here would be the unbeliever, the unbelieving, unregenerate. Now, let me ask you, in 70 A.D., when was judgment day? When were all the unbelievers judged in 70 A.D.? Well, of course it didn't happen. And so why would a preterist take this information and try to apply it to 70 A.D.? It doesn't make any sense. And by the way, just to let you know, do you know where preterism originated from? It originated from the Catholic Church. It's a, it's a Catholic doctrine, and now it's being run and used by so many people in the re supposed Reformed tradition. Let me explain why. The Reformers were historists. They took all of Revelation and they put it in history. So who's the Antichrist? The Pope. So the way to get off the hook is the Catholic Church says, no, Revelation isn't about what happens now. It happened in 70 A.D., therefore our Antichrist isn't the Pope. Well, hypox on both of their houses, they're both wrong. It's about the future. And these things haven't yet occurred, and you and I have to know that. And In fact, if anyone's confused about the interpretation of the book of Revelation, we gave a whole series in the very beginning of these messages about that. Now, one thing I want to point out as we talk about verse 19, notice here we have another storm theophany. It says, And the temple of God which is in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Now, notice here the term temple of God is used in red in Revelation eleven nineteen. I put it in red. The temple here is the term naos, and so it's the inner sanctuary. There's another term that could have been used, Huron. That's the greater complex, but what's being focused on here is the dwelling place of God, and what you and I have to realize is that the ultimate temple was never in Jerusalem per se. It was always the one in Jerusalem was a copy of the greater reality that we see in heaven. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, going back to Hebrews again, makes this very point. Hebrews 9.24, it says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, notice that phrase, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. So here, brothers and sisters, we have the true temple being opened up. And it's very significant because I think it shows divine pleasure for Israel. And the reason I say that is think about the grand point of this chapter. Chapter 11 of Revelation began with the measuring of the earthly temple in Jerusalem. And remember, you and I were perplexed, not really, but we sent, there was a sense of perplexity because 
John never finishes measuring the temple. You never see, well, it's this big, it's so many feet long or cubits, etc. He never comes to a conclusion. But what we realized was that same thing happened in Zechariah 4, that when the temple was to be measured, the point was not to find out the dimensions, but to show that God's favor had returned to it. So as we proceeded through chapter 11, we see the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week, and lo and behold, we see that Christ's reign is going to come. And at the very end, God's temple in heaven opens up. So it begins with the measuring of this new earthly temple. It ends, chapter 11, with the unveiling of God's temple, the true one in heaven. And what God is showing is that his favor has returned. His favor has returned to the people of God. And that what is going to happen in the earthly temple has been backed up and validated in the heavenly one. That God does not miss any of his promises. He will be faithful to everything that he does. In fact, think about this. I shared this in our conference, Romans eleven fifteen. A lot of people say, well, what do I care about a reestablished Jerusalem, reestablished temple, reestablished Israel? Why should I care? Well, the apostle Paul said we should care. Listen to his greater to lesser, or lesser to greater argument. He says, for if their rejection, he's talking about the rejection of the Jews. This is Romans eleven fifteen. Paul says, for if their rejection, that is Israel, is the reconciliation of the world, that's us Gentiles, what will their acceptance, that is their ingathering again, be but life from the dead? So what Paul is saying is if it was great news for Gentiles that God had partially hardened them so that you would receive the gospel, so that you, in fact, would come to salvation, how much greater is it going to be when they as a nation are going to be reestablished? Why? Because that's our king and kingdom too. You and I have been grafted into these promises. So we as Gentile believers ought not to yawn and say, oh, yeah, Israel's going to be made a nation. No, it's our kingdom too. And that's what I want to really show you at the end of this chapter. This is exciting. All of God's promises are true. The God that you serve, as Bob said earlier, is a God who cannot lie. And to me, brothers and sisters, that's extremely important. Now, one point I want to make is notice here we have the storm theophany. It's at the seventh trumpet. Does everyone see that? Make sure if I can find my... Oh, I lost it. This curse. There we are. Notice the peals of thunder. Does everyone see that? That's storm theophany. And it comes through the throne room, or from the throne room. Notice here, go back to Revelation 4, 5. Out from the throne comes flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Now, why is that important? Because the throne room is a stand-in for God himself. Remember Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. When it says that righteousness and justice is the foundation of God's throne, it means it's inherent to who he is. So when something comes from the throne room, it's coming from God himself. Okay. So for example, when we get to the seventh seal, notice for the sake of time in red, you see peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. We see the same thing at the seventh bowl on the previous slide. Peals of thunder and earthquake, etc. Then when we get to the seventh bowl, I'm sorry, the seventh trumpet is what we saw. Now we get to the seventh bowl, Revelation 16, 8. It says, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. So my point in showing you this is that the seventh seal, seventh trumpet, seventh bowl, all has this storm theophany to show you that all of the judgments originate from where? The throne room of God, therefore God, from God himself. Now, this is important to our theology 
Let me explain why. There's a movement called pre-wrath. And what they believe is that the wrath of God does not begin really until the trumpet judgments. Okay? Now, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with it is it ignores the structure. When you have the seventh seal, seventh trumpet, and seventh bowl all have the storm theophany, and it links back to the throne room, you can see that all of it comes from God. So you can't say, well, this is just the wrath of man, and this is the wrath of God later. No, it all comes from him. He's the one who's on the throne. All of it's the wrath of God. What does that mean? If the wrath of God begins at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, and you're promised to be exempt from it, aren't you promised? We've not been destined to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, Revelation 3, 10. We've been promised exemption. You can't be there for it. So that's one of the reasons why I hold to the position of pre-trib. Okay, so it's important for our theology. Okay. Sorry, Brian. We see the uh, storm theophany of Moses and then also again in the uh, transfiguration. Exactly right. And there's a connection. I think we did talk about that um, previously, but you're exactly right. It's to bring us back to the Sinai event. uh, And also, you're right, to the Mount of Transfiguration, you see some very similar elements. Yeah. Yep. Very good. Now, we had kind of a, a, a brouhaha. It was a friendly one, but it was about who enters the millennium. And I come to the position that I know that unbelievers enter into the millennium, and it could be believers enter into the millennium. I'm talking about in an unresurrected body, okay? So we all know that believers are going to be in the millennial kingdom in a resurrected body. But the question is, who populates these unbelievers who rebel at the end of the thousand years? Is everyone with me? Well, I had mentioned that I think that there are unbelievers who enter in in non-resurrected bodies, in the millennial kingdom. Now, the reason why this has been kind of a brouhaha is there's been some really good scholars that are on our side. They're pre-tribulationalists. One man is named John Feinberg, and he would say, no, there's not a single unbeliever that will ever enter into the millennial kingdom. And whereas I agree with him in his ultimate conclusion in his theology, I disagree with his findings there. In other words, I don't think one of the proofs of pre-tribulationalism is that you have to have people that are unbelievers go into the millennial kingdom in non-resurrected bodies. Let me explain the text that he uses to try to prove that. He uses this one. Notice Matthew 25, 31 through 34. And then it's going to be verse 41. This is where he gets this data. This is John Feinberg. He does a wonderful job. You should read him. He's very good. But this is just one area of disagreement. He says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Okay? Well, notice now in verse 41, it says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones. Okay, so stop there for just a moment. From that, John Feinberg deduces that no one except believers will enter into the millennial kingdom. Does everyone understand that? So a lot of Christians get upset if you say that unbelievers will enter into the millennial kingdom. Why does it matter? Because someone has to be in a non-resurrected body to produce children who are going to rebel at the end of the millennial kingdom. Is everyone with me? But the problem with Feinberg saying, that no believer can enter in. I agree. God here, Jesus, is taking the sheep and the goats. There's only two groups. 
But notice, this isn't necessarily linked to the millennial kingdom. Why? Notice in red. I'll read verse 41 again. It says, Then he will say also to those on the left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. When does that judgment happen? That happens at the eternal states, exactly. So what I'm saying is, I don't think we can take this text as a proof as to what occurs before the millennial kingdom. My point is, I think Jesus is compressing. He's basically just wanting to prove the point that at the end of the day, there's only two groups. There's sheep and there's goats. And the sheep are going to be blessed and the goats are going to be accursed. Okay? So the details then are flushed out in the book of Revelation. Okay? So that's one of the reasons why I don't think we can use this text to say no unbeliever can enter into the kingdom. Lonnie. Yeah, I just to... Oh, we'll get it on. I'm sorry. I, d- I just wanted to... Uh say about the, you know, it's a fiction series, but the Left Behind series, the very last book in the series, yeah. it was written a little bit later, but it dealt with the millennium, you know, it's fiction, but it was talking about, they did a story about the children that were born at the time of the millennium, and some of those children rebelled and, you know, got into sin. So there will be sin during the millennial kingdom. Exactly, because that's the final battle of Gog and Magog where they all come against Jerusalem and Jesus calls down fire on them. Exactly right. Um, Let me just show you another text why I don't think we necessarily have to say that all unbelievers are wiped out. Notice here Revelation 19, 19 through 21. John says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies. Does everyone see the armies there assembled to make war? against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So they're warring against Jesus. Verse 20, it says, And the beast was seized, that's the Antichrist, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Notice verse 21, it says, And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now, here's the point. Notice in verse 21 it says, and the rest were killed. Many scholars have taken that to say that means every single unbeliever. But notice it should be understood as referring to the armies. Okay, so in other words, when you look at the totality of it, it's the armies that surround Jerusalem. That doesn't mean every single three, four, five-year-old at home from where the armies came are going to be slain by Jesus at his coming. Is everyone with me? Now, the reason that's important, just one more time, Zechariah 14. Notice down in verse 16, for the sake of time, notice it says, Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem. Stop there. That's exactly what we're reading about in Revelation 19. Notice there are some who are left. And these are obviously going to be unbelievers. Why? Turn your attention to verse 17. I don't have it on the screen. Can everyone turn to Zechariah 14, 17? And I'll conclude with this. Zechariah 14, 17. For the sake of time, I'll read it here. And it says, And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Let me ask you this. Are believers going to have to be compelled to go worship Yahweh? No. They will want to do it. So that's only unbelievers. So the unbelievers come from where? They come from those who are left of all the nations. Does everyone see that? So I think clearly there are unbelievers who enter into the millennial kingdom. That's the reasoning for it. So again, Matthew 25, I don't think excludes 
when Jesus says you have sheep and the goats, I don't think that that excludes uh, unbelievers from entering into the kingdom. I think Jesus is simply compressing it because you see the unbelievers are thrown into the lake of fire, which doesn't happen to the eternal states. So Matthew 25, I don't think, can be used to prove the other. All right, is everyone with me? Okay, well, let's bow our heads in prayer. I know we're over time. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can look at these great things in your scriptures, that we can wrestle with these great truths. And I thank you so much for this people who love you, who love your truth and love one another. And I pray, Lord, that as we hear the sermon today, that we would hear with open ears and minds that are willing to be about your business, Lord, and to forsake sin. I do pray for my brothers and sisters that they would be reminded that your reign is coming to earth and that no matter what evils we see here presently, they're only for a short time and that eternity with you is so great. And so we do pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.